This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 29th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. President Obama has laid out the broad strokes of a reduced role for the U.S. military abroad, but what exactly would that look like? Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, evaluates the president's commencement address at West Point. What would you say the point of President Obama's speech was? Uh, well, the point was to respond to his critics who s- seem mostly to be concerned that he's not more willing to do more around the world. Now, again, that's that's a pretty vague concept. So what more do they want him to do? Um, some, a few, are fairly emphatic that we should be using the military more often. And again, it's appropriate that he gives a speech at West Point where these people are actually – these new cadets and those who are in attendance and who are in the military who um, – will actually be called on to execute these things if, he's actually, if they are actually asked to do something. Um, and so I do think that there, there were two passages in the speech that uh, were really a shot across the bow at the, the most hawkish critics, those who, are, who think he hasn't used the military often enough. So one, he points out that uh, you know, people are complaining that, uh, that not every problem has a military solution. And he says, some of our most costly mistakes came not from our restraint but from our willingness to rush into military adventures without thinking through the consequences or leveling with the American people about the sacrifice required. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty pointed shot across the bow. We know who he's talking about here, especially people who advocated the war in Iraq, who said it would be easy, who said it would be a cakewalk, who said it would be welcomed as liberators, all that. So that was pretty straightforward. And then not long after that, <clears throat> he also says, uh, again, he's speaking to the graduating cadets mainly. I would betray my duty to you and to the country we love if I sent you into harm's way simply because I saw a problem somewhere in the world that needed fixing or because I was worried about critics who think military intervention is the only way for America to avoid looking weak. So those two lines uh, were a pretty clear um, uh, you know, statement to, to these hawkish critics uh, that he's not going to do what they want him to do, which is to use the military more often. Um, it's also interesting that the, the debate in, in Washington or among the foreign policy elites about a certain fecklessness of the Obama administration with respect to foreign policy is really disconnected from the public at large. Uh, the public at large doesn't – including those who are not huge Barack Obama fans uh, – don't particularly like what he's doing in domestic policy or foreign policy, uh, but they're pretty sure they don't – they don't like what the alternative is, which is frequent military intervention, especially military intervention by the U.S. military. So there's this odd disconnect between what the critics are criticizing him for, not using the military more often, and what the public, to the extent they pay any attention to foreign policy at all, what they actually want, which is to use the military less. So he's kind of trying to find this middle ground. And, and I think the speech ultimately fell flat because finding that middle ground sounds sort of wishy-washy and uh, it's a lot, of, a lot of nothing. With respect to this particular president, mm-hmm. uh, he's talking about these engagements that have been going on since 2001. Mm-hmm. And while he hasn't specifically gone to Congress in order to use the military, he has used the military right. a bunch of times. Right. And to argue for restraint would seem to be a call for going to Congress for this sort of thing. Well, the president doesn't 
really want to do that. Presidents, I shouldn't just say President Obama, presidents don't really want to go to Congress uh, unless they want some political cover to do something that uh, they think will be uh, difficult or, or potentially costly politically and so they want others to be on board with them. You're right. There's no mention in here really about Congress, about the role that Congress should or could play in terms of foreign policy other than, other than kind of putting before them this $5 billion slush fund for funding counterterrorism operations and saying, you know, Congress should fund. Um, but look, it's, it's easy I – mean, going back to the politics of it, uh, the, the old saying is you can't beat something with nothing. Well, that's not really true. In fact, Barack Obama has proved you can beat something with nothing when the something that he's competing against is the guys who brought you the war in Iraq and I'm not it. Uh, that's my foreign policy. That's, that's nothing. Uh, but it's better than the alternative. And I think uh, he has once again uh, – and I, I suspect it, it's not I, – I don't, I don't really believe that it was deliberate. It's just sort of uh, the, the, the hand that he's dealt is that he has a public that is not uh, enthusiastic about military interventions, even the small ones that he engaged in like the one in Libya, even the incredibly small one as his secretary of state was proposing in Syria and the public rose up in opposition. They were, as I documented and, and I, my colleagues here at Cato did numerous times, the elites were completely and utterly disconnected from the public at large and they were shocked when the public rose up against an incredibly small military intervention that did not even involve the US military. Even that was too much for the American people and it was a bipartisan uprising that caught him and Congress and other and you know the leaders in both parties and the and the foreign policy elite caught them by surprise. So, we don't have uh, this is a commencement address and right. presumably the president is going to make additional uh, speeches or let, detailing uh, some of these some of these issues in greater depth well at least we hope. Right. Uh, but is there any sense of what type of standard should prevail uh, for the use of military action? Certainly, he's got a small minority of hawks that may disagree with some of the substance here. But to the extent there is substance, it seems broadly agreeable without any real uh, teeth. Right. He, he didn't say anything here to offend anyone that I can tell. Uh, he didn't satisfy his critics who wanted him to stake out a very emphatic and kind of George W. Bush 2002 era speech to the West, to West Point where basically President Bush outlined what became known as the Bush Doctrine in terms of unilateralism and um, uh, prevent, preventive war. Uh, obviously, this was a very different speech. I think the next big event, the, the president, by tradition, the president gives uh, a speech at one of the three service academies each year. He, and, and so the next big foreign policy statement by the White House will be the release of the national security strategy, which has been delayed. It was supposed to come out in February or March and has now been delayed for a couple months. Uh, we're not entirely sure why, but there's rumors that it, the, the, the draft will finally uh, see the light of day fairly soon. Um, and those kinds of documents on the one hand are also written by committee and also written in a way that's not meant to offend. So you have to kind of read between the lines uh, in terms of what they're talking about. But I. But if the national security strategy, like like the previous ones, it's not going to spell out very specifically what the criteria are for the use of force, and so we're left with 
what I think is a fairly obvious statement, but some people have, have picked up on, that he will he reserves the right as President of the United States to use unilateral force to defend the security of the United States and our allies. That That's the statement almost verbatim from the speech yesterday at West Point. And again, I, I heard that and I said, well, wouldn't every president say that? Isn't that an obvious statement? Some people are taking this as some emphatic statement of unilateral, you know, U.S. unilateralism. It's like, well, no, that's just what any president would say. Beyond that, however, which is a fairly, which is actually fairly broad uh, uh, statement, um, we don't know what criteria govern this president's uh, decision to use force or to intervene diplomatically in other ways, whether it's economic pressure, whether it's uh, negotiations, whether it's uh, working with other countries. We just we just don't know. Uh, the 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 point that again, you didn't have to hear the speech to 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 remember. Um, the public is is deeply concerned about becoming entangled in foreign conflicts, particularly foreign civil wars, and that's exactly what's happening in Syria. It's tragic. The scale of the of the violence and death is is really appalling, but it is a civil war and it is a conflict where neither side there are more than one more than two sides, but neither side is likely to win a decisive victory, uh, and neither and we don't want either side to win a decisive victory. So that that's just the reality of it. He talks about the South China Sea and the possibility that the U.S. could be drawn into conflict there, mm-hmm. and it immediately makes a point about with whom we side in that region. Right. To talk of drawing our military into conflicts in a region, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really go into mentioning the fact that we have these tens of thousands of troops right there, ready to go. Uh, true. Of course, the troops that are in, especially in Korea and in, in, uh, on the Korean Peninsula and in Japan and Okinawa mainly, um, they're sort of a tripwire force. They're there to kind of build the credibility of our security guarantees to the Koreans and the Japanese. Um, a, a conflict in the in the South China Sea or in the or in the Pacific more generally is not going to be fought by the the Army and Marine Corps on islands. It'll be fought by the Navy and the Air Force and the Air and the Sea. So I I do think there's a distinction there. And I think in fact um, we are likely to see a slight um, reduction, maybe not in the numbers of troops in East Asia but in their disposition and where they're placed and more emphasis on air and naval power. And we're already starting to see that t- to a certain extent. How much detail does he go into our security commitments at all? Well, he doesn't. And actually, this is one of the other things I knocked him for. Uh, it, he talks about wanting other allies, other partners to do more. He, he mentions that specifically with respect to Syria and a few other vague references to we want greater burden sharing. This is a, again, who can object to that? This is a, you know, overwhelmingly popular idea among the American people uh, and and b- by politicians like Barack Obama. But again, this is not the first time he said that. When he intervened in, Mil- in Libya unilaterally back in 2011, he also said that he wanted other countries to go along. He expected other countries to go along with him. And and he doesn't seem to understand that the reason why other countries don't spend more on their military and are not inclined to use it is because the United States does spend more on its military and we are inclined to use it. It's an iron law of alliance politics when you have one alliance partner that is vastly stronger than any other alliance partner. The other alliance partners will free ride. It is absolutely – it's the, one of the clearest cases. And you don't need to have – there's a long literature on this. 
you don't – it's just basic common sense. People are not inclined to pay for things that other people will buy for them. We understand this concept in domestic politics. Conservatives especially are supposed to, but they don't seem to understand it when it comes to foreign policy. And the president, in the way that he spelled the speech out, in, in kind of complaining or, or cajoling the allies to do more, but not stipulating how he would get them to do more, he just demonstrates he doesn't really understand how this process works. Chris Preble is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.